the last time that I preached was a few weeks ago, and the text was Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy. And as we looked at the final two verses of that letter, I began by pointing out the significance that beginnings and endings seem to have in our life. It feels like an extra amount of weight is placed on the beginning and at the ending. And so those, those last uh, two verses in that chapter were especially significant because it talked about a stewardship and about guarding the deposit uh, within the context of, of that message. So I couldn't help last week but notice that when Brad spoke for the first time on the new series called Messy Church, uh, one of the first things that he said was, right from the beginning, there were disagreements in the church. The book of 1 Corinthians is Paul's response to what was happening at the church in Corinth. And it can, it can be easy to think, I think many of us, I know I have thought this many, many times, it can be easy to think that the early church was a time when things were at their best. I mean, this is the, the closest time chronologically to when Jesus was ministering on earth. Uh, we've got eyewitnesses. We've got people that have a very clear idea of what the church is all about. And so it's very easy for us to think, wow, that was the best time. That would have been uh, the most, if we're looking at the scale of really missing the point to really close to fulfilling what Jesus has called the church to be, we're on that side of the spectrum. So close here. And it can be more and more difficult as we get further removed from, from Christ's presence here on earth uh, to, to what it was actually supposed to be. But, as we see throughout this book, there's a lot of disagreements going on here. Just a few years after this church has been planted, there's a lot of messy situations going on here at the church of Corinth. And there was a lot of good things, too. It's a mix of a number of different things. Uh, years ago, uh, a friend of mine said this to me, and I'll never forget it. It's one of those uh, messages that just kind of stays in, in the back of your head. Uh, he told me, where two or more are gathered, there are politics. You guys ever heard that before? Obviously, a, a well-known phrase in the Bible is, where two or more are gathered, the Spirit is there in their midst. Jesus said that, right? I'm, I'm the Spirit here in the midst. But, I mean, another truth is, where two or more are gathered, there are politics. I mean, things get a little bit messy. Things get a little bit complicated when we add people together. We all have our opinions. We all have our agendas. We all have our faults. And so, should it really be any surprise to us that sometimes it's difficult to get along? Church can be messy. And I think church can be messy because church is made up of people. And people have a tough time getting along a lot of the time. Even people who have given their lives to the Lord and who are doing everything within their ability to submit their lives to the Lord, it still can create some difficult situations. And I can't help but think that we forget sometimes that church can be messy because church is not a destination. It's not the end point. It's a process. We're a community. We're essentially a family. And pretty much every family that I know has their times and their messy moments. Author Scott McKnight, who I'm going to cite a few times this morning, he's the author of this book called A Fellowship of Difference. It was on our book list that we uh, had out last week for you to do some reading along with our teaching series. He describes the church this way. He says, The church is a hospital for sinners, not a retirement center for the perfect. Looking for perfect Christians in a perfect church is failure to understand what the church is. Looking for perfect Christians in a perfect church is failure to understand what the church really is. Which brings us to the Apostle Paul. 
because Paul knew a thing or two about messy church situations. He was a church planter. He was a teacher. uh, He was a pastor. He was a mentor. But we know him best as a writer for the writing that he did to a number of churches during this time in the New Testament. And the book of 1 Corinthians is where our text is at for our series. And he addresses a number of messy church situations here in this letter. So he begins his letter like he does pretty much every letter with a few introductory comments and some blessings and some greetings. And then he gets into his first point in verse number 10. And this is where we're going to begin our text today. So if you have your Bibles, please make sure you open them up. If you don't have one, well, the message is here in the Bible, so I think it would probably be wise if you went and grabbed a Bible over at the Welcome Center. If you don't have one, we will have some verses up there on the screen as well. But this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. And Paul writes this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there would be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. So we'll stop there just after that first verse, because we see that Paul begins with an appeal. And seeing how this verse kind of begins the body of his letter, we can safely say that that Paul is speaking with a high sense of urgency. This is kind of his opening point. He's appealing with the people, hey, you need to agree with one another. And his request is pretty direct, right? Agree with one another. But this means more than just getting along with one another. Whenever I hear that phrase, getting along, I kind of picture two teenage siblings who are at odds with one another, and their idea of getting along is giving each other the silent treatment. Mom and dad say, get along. So they kind of cross their arms, and they avoid each other, and they're quiet. And of course, that's, that's very different than living at harmony and being united with one another, because the strife is still there. They're just subduing it through silence and avoidance. So it works for the short term but it doesn't really get down to the root of the matter. What Paul says here is, he says to the church at Corinth, be united in mind and in thought. But just as being united means something different than just getting along, it also means something different than complete uniformity or complete agreement in each and everything. He's not commanding the church to share the same opinion about everything. He's reminding them that the attitude that fuels divisiveness and conflict is one of the greatest threats to the health of the church. The goal is not complete agreement about everything. The goal is mutual harmony and unity so that disagreements don't fester and grow into poisonous divisions. There's a big difference between a civil disagreement and a contentious quarrel. So if Paul isn't suggesting that everyone needs to be unanimous, that every vote in the church uh, needs to be uh, completely according to what each and every person wants, then what does he mean when he talks about being united in mind and in thought? Well, we get a better understanding of what Paul means by what he says not to do, by what he says in the negative. Looking again, once again, in in verse 10. He says, let there be no divisions among you. Now, the Greek word that's used for division means to split or to tear. So this doesn't necessarily mean that there's actual literal divisions that are happening here. He's getting more at at the heart behind this divisive attitude. In Gordon Fee's commentary, he says the best illustration for the word division is in John's gospel, where various groups have divided opinions about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is, is speaking, and a number of people, they're trying to figure out 
who it is that, that has this authority and who is speaking amongst them. And so some of them say, oh, he's the Christ. He must be the promised Messiah. And others say, no, 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 he can't be that because he's from Galilee. And we learn there that the people were split. They were divided based on their opinion of him. Not l- literally split into different groups, but figuratively because of their disagreement. They weren't unified in what they thought of Jesus. And this is very similar to what Paul says in the next verse, in verse 11. The Corinthians have different opinions about various leaders, and it's beginning to tear the very fabric of their community apart. So it's fitting that Paul tells his readers to be united, which literally means to be knit together. Instead of ripping or tearing or destroying the the fabric, he says you need to be knit together and unified. So going down to verse 11 now, he says, My brothers and sisters... Some of you from Chloe's, or some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. And here's where we get a better understanding of what's going on with this divisive attitude. And we aren't the only ones that figured this out because apparently Paul wasn't even aware of what was going on until uh, someone from Chloe's household came and told him, what they had experienced when they were in Corinth. So Paul kind of gets insider information, and he discovers that there's been people who have been quarreling. Now, I almost never come across the word quarrel unless I'm reading the Bible, which is good because I don't like to pronounce the word quarrel. It feels very difficult. I don't know if people use this in their typical vocabulary, but I usually don't. And uh, what I find here is that this actually happens to be one of Paul's go-to words. No one else says quarrel in the entire New Testament, but Paul uses it nine times in his letters. He loves this word, quarrel. Now, what is a quarrel exactly? Well, a commentator named Simon Kistemaker uh, explains that quarrels display a lack of love. Those who quarrels have a contentious spirit, and they seek to stir up strife. It describes a divisive and selfish attitude. Quarreling is evidence of putting yourself before someone else. It means that it violates God's command to love one another. Which might explain why I don't like the word quarrel. It's not just talking about it. It's the actual substance of it. The description kind of makes me want to avoid that church. Like, which one of us would say, I'm in Corinth. Let's go to that church that has a whole bunch of quarreling about. But I'm not, then again, you know, how many churches out there exist where there isn't at least some bit of quarreling. Now, I don't want to dismiss the seriousness of the issue, but I'm also trying to be realistic. I'm go back to Scott McKnight, who I quoted earlier, about this idea of sort of the, the golden age of the church. Uh, listen to what he says. He says, when, when we're reading through what's happening in the New Testament church, we see a pattern that many of us don't want to acknowledge. We are a messy family. There never was a golden era when the church did church perfectly. And we'll see this throughout this letter to the Corinthians. There's a ton of just ugly, messy, difficult situations that are going on in their church. People are suing one another. Like they're taking people to court to handle their own disagreements within the church. There's sexual immorality that is going on. It's so bad, and Paul is so amazed at the type of situations that they have there that he says your behavior and your attitude is is worse than the people who don't even go to church. The people who aren't even part of their faith aren't dreaming up uh, some of the the, uh, immorality that you guys are telling me about here. 
And it might even be the worst when we get to chapter 11 and Paul actually says, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Like seriously, this is the Apostle Paul talking to a church and he says, it'd be better off if you didn't even gather together and worship together because what you're doing is worse off than if you wouldn't be meeting at all. It's no wonder that McKnight calls the church a messing family. And it shouldn't surprise us when we go through our moments of struggles and discouragement. But let's return to the topic of quarreling. Why is there contentiousness and strife in this Corinthian church? What is going on? Well, the quarreling is apparently linked to the names of some leaders. Paul is named, so is Apollos, so is Peter, who's called Cephas, which is his Aramaic name that Paul likes to use every once in a while. Even Jesus' name is included in this mix. And this appears odd because what we know from Paul and from some of these other leaders as well is they certainly wouldn't endorse kind of picking sides and, and having strife and contention and quarreling. But now at least we know what the issue is. Apparently, um, we, don't have, we don't have a ton of information as far as why some of these, these groups were forming or why people were pledging allegiance to a certain leader. Uh, there's thinking here that Apollos was very eloquent. He was a very good speaker. And so maybe there's people at Corinth saying, boy, you know, enough of this Paul already. Um, I kind of, I like the preaching of this guy or the teaching of this guy. There might be other people that say, well, remember, Peter was a disciple of Jesus. And so maybe he ought to have more authority. And so I think I'm going to have a little bit more allegiance to, to that leader. We don't know for sure what their issues were, but we do know what Paul thinks about them. Because this is what he says in in the final verses of our text this morning, 13 to 17. He starts asking rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, it's almost like he comes to think of it as he's writing here. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So faced with this tall order of responding to this contentiousness, that behavior that's going on in Corinth, Paul does what he does best. He starts throwing out questions. He uses his rhetorical language, which is kind of his MO throughout his letters. Asking rhetorical questions is kind of like the sweet spot on Paul's tennis racket. And Gordon Fee says in his commentary, his questions are designed to help his readers see the total absurdity of their own position. So let's take a moment to look at his three, three questions. The first one, is Christ divided? Um, no. That's the easiest one to, to answer, right? Paul doesn't even offer a response to this question. He just keeps right on going. He doesn't even want to respond to the foolishness of this idea that Christ would be divided, which would then obviously have that, that conclusion of why would you as the people of Christ be divided yourself? Jesus answered this question himself in the Gospels. Uh, when he was asked, uh, people were curious about how Jesus had the power to cast out demons and uh, to speak control over, uh, over demonic activity and have demons flee uh, people's bodies. Uh, some people thought, well, maybe he's the prince of demons. Maybe he's using the power of darkness and he has control over that. Maybe that's how we can explain this. You remember the response that Jesus gives? 
If you don't remember his response, you might remember Abraham Lincoln's because Lincoln kind of ripped it off of, of Jesus, and he's more famous for it than Jesus is. But any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. A house divided against itself will fall. That's what Jesus responded. No, I'm not divided. How could I be divided? Of course, Lincoln used that in an illustration about 1,800 years later. So is Christ divided? No, absolutely not. Next question. Was Paul crucified for you? Now, this is obvious as well. Paul doesn't need to answer this either. Of course he wasn't crucified. The crucified and risen Savior is Jesus himself, who is not divided. He lives in perfect harmony, perfect harmony with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, the three in one. He is not divided. And lastly, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, this one is a a little bit of a possibility, so Paul answers his final question. He explains that he hasn't done much baptizing him, much much baptizing himself. And furthermore, even when a person is baptizing, is baptized, they're, they're not baptized into the allegiance of that person. They're baptized into the name of Jesus. They're declaring their allegiance to their Redeemer and their leader, which is why when a person is baptized in our faith community, most faith communities, uh, we specifically say they're being baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and uh, and of the Holy Spirit. And from here, Paul then begins to describe his specific tasks that he's been charged with. He wasn't commissioned by Jesus to baptize others. He was chosen to preach the gospel. And he explains that as he preaches the gospel, he will not appeal to human wisdom because this would diminish the power of the cross. And this is really an introduction into the next section of, of the passage that, that Pastor Brad will pick up next week. So then, what's Paul's point? <laughs> what's all this language about quarreling and divisiveness and uh, different names of leaders? What does all of this have to do with Corinth? What does all this have to do with us? Why does he start his letter this way? Well, I think quite obviously there's quarreling going on. There is some divisiveness going on, that's for sure. But it seems to go further than just these actions. I agree with what Gordon Fee says when he says the greater issue for Paul is not the division itself. That's merely the symptom. The greater issue is the threat posed to the gospel. And along with that, to the nature of the church and to its apostolic ministry. The symptom is important, but the cause is what's really important. The message of the cross is opposed to the attitude that Paul has just learned about that's running throughout the church of Corinth. The divisive quarreling that's going on, the choosing of sides, the hidden agendas, the secrecy of it, all of it shows that these people are missing the point. It's a tale of opposing attitudes. The quarreler is selfish. The gospel is selfless. The quarreler is selfish the gospel is selfless. Do you notice the way that, that Paul tells the church to stop, to stop quarreling in this passage? He gently points them to the cross. He doesn't say, hey, stop it. Quit quarreling. What are you doing? Grow up. No. He points to the cross. Uh, he simply, basically says, hey, this was the most selfless act imaginable. If you're really a follower of Christ, wouldn't you want to emulate him? How can you be quarreling and creating divisiveness and have allegiance to him at the same time? Why would we stir up strife to hurt the people that Jesus gave his life up for? It's also interesting that the quarrels mentioned here have almost no details. There's no threat of heresy. 
These quarrels aren't happening to save the integrity of the gospel. They're happening to the detriment of the gospel. And Paul is a writer that never shies away from naming heresy. We'll see that later on in the text. So we get the the feeling that these are petty disagreements that don't really have any sort of merit or standing in the church at Corinth. So we shouldn't think of this message as a, hey, you know what, let's just be good with anything that goes on here, and I'll just never rock the boat. No, Paul is saying something different. He's saying the quarreler is just selfish. These are petty, selfish acts. The gospel is selfless. And the best word that I can think of to use to describe the word selfishness is only two letters long. Emony. I remember I played uh, baseball years ago when I was a kid, and I remember our coach once said, uh, there's no I in team. And a team many of mine said, yeah, but there's an M and an E. You know, he was rather selfish. But, but there's this idea here that we see here in Corinth of people that have turned the we church, this understanding of being the collective people of God, into a me church. I'm going to go back to Scott McKnight's book and read a little bit about what he says. What he says about really the word me and the history of how we can read through our calling as the people of God. He writes, the most important term in the Bible is God. And we can break that term into three. Father, Son, and Spirit. The second most important term in the Bible is people. The people of God. And we can break that into three as well. Israel, kingdom, and the church. In other words, God and we. As I've mentioned, far too much of Christianity is obsessed with that which is personal, individual, intimate, devotional, and private. In other words, the me. But me is not one of the most important words in the Bible. You don't get me until you pass through God and people. And if you move in that order, me morphs into we. The me posture turns the Bible upside down and inside out. The Bible's focus, read it from beginning to end and you will see this, is on what God is doing in this world through the people of God. Page after page, chapter after chapter, book after book, 66 of them in all, the Bible tells the story of Israel that morphs into the story of the kingdom and the story of the church. That story of people finishes in Revelation with God creating a new Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth, where the focus again is on the people of God. No one's name is even mentioned. There is no, I see Donald and Sherry and Kathy and Bud. Yes, of course, there's an intensely personal and individual element within the story of the people, but the me story is contained within the we story. The me story is contained within the we story. When the people of the church begin to measure the church based on the idea of me, the church shifts to a very scary place because it no longer functions as it was designed to be. This quarreler is selfish. The gospel is selfless. But let's consider what Paul's message to the Corinthians means for us because the type of quarreling that Paul addresses in this passage doesn't really feel like a a direct application that you and I can can just insert into our priority list and say, okay, you know, I, I, I I can do this. I might be completely wrong, but I don't think there's really any quarrels swirling around our church uh, that we have names of leaders attached to them. I'm guessing that there aren't secret Brad camps and Ralph camps and Ellen camps that are secretly meeting and multiplying a spirit of divisiveness. I suppose it could be possible. Uh, Paul is completely ignorant of this until he hears from Chloe's household, so maybe I'll hear from someone else today that (laughs) I'm ignorant of this 
as well. But I think all of us can fall into a similar trap about thinking about me church instead of we church. It's easy for us to to look at other churches and other silly situations that maybe we've heard about and to point our finger about it and say, wow, that's, that's completely offsides. How could they have done that? Stories about churches fighting over carpet color or complaining about the pastor's kids. They are the worst, aren't they? Pastor's kids. Can't stand them. I've heard fights about coffee being brought into worship centers. I've heard emergency meetings being called because the youth went beyond the confines of their designated areas in the church. You know, the areas that have really plush couches and fresh painting with no holes in the walls. I mean, these are examples that are really easy to point at because they not only seem ridiculous, but they're as far removed from our situation as we can get. Like, we don't have carpet. We don't even have a church building. And the children of our pastors are outstanding. Like, I am so proud of them, for one. But what about us? What about you? What about me? Are you guilty of quarreling? Have you intentionally, maybe unintentionally, been stirring up strife? Are you clinging to any sort of resentment, bitterness? Do you find yourself thinking more about what you want as opposed to what the church is actually supposed to be or what Jericho Ridge is called to? I find it hard to think about disagreement or selfishness or quarreling without thinking about marriage because these sorts of things happen in a marriage. I think there's a lot of parallel between family and marriage and the church. I asked Melissa for permission to tell this story, and she granted it to me because it's all about me, so that works out okay. Whenever Melissa and I are in the middle of a disagreement, I find myself stuck between two fundamental options. It's almost like I have two heads, or, or two, two uh, you know, you got the two, the two angels on your shoulder, back going back to the Tom and Jerry cartoons way back when. It's like I, I have two different voices in my head. And the first is the one that I'm instantaneously drawn to. It goes like this. You've got this, Keith. You have got this. Just dig your heels in a little bit more, and you can talk your way out of this. This is your time. This is your time to finally get what you want. And you know what? You matter just as much as she does. But then at some point in the conversation, or usually when I'm thinking about this myself, another question comes into my mind. Why am I really upset about this? Is it because of something honorable? Or am I just being selfish? Are you sure this isn't just about wanting what you want instead of being what your wife needs you to be and who God can transform you to be? That's not fun to admit, but I find that a lot of conflict in my life is because of my selfishness. And in almost every single case, selfishness is incompatible with the mission of marriage. Selfishness is incompatible with something else too. The mission of the church. How can the church be the faithful representation of Christ's family if quarreling is a constant activity? How can the church display the power of the Holy Spirit when it is not unified and does not operate as one unified group the way that Jesus prayed for the church to be. 
This is why Paul urges the church to be perfectly united in mind and in spirit. And the way this becomes possible is when we develop the same mind and the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus. What Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. May our mind and our attitude be the same as Christ Jesus. I want to describe this vision in the words of Pastor Ray Stedman. He says this, When everybody decides to put the things of Christ first and is willing to suffer loss, that the honor and glory of Christ might be advanced, that is what brings harmony in a congregation. That is always the unifying factor in a church. And that is the mind that is to be among us. The mind that does not consider itself the most important thing. The mind that does not consider itself the most important thing. The Lord's Supper is one of the ways that we remember and that we celebrate Christian community. It's a reminder that even though Christ died for me, I will always be connected to we. We experience the love and the grace of Jesus through one another. Here at Jericho Ridge, the communion table is open to anyone who has given their life to the Lord and who is in right relationship with him. And as Paul teaches later in 1 Corinthians, we are instructed to examine our lives, to judge ourselves before we eat the bread and drink from the cup. So our worship team is going to come forward at this time. They're going to lead us through a couple of songs. And while they do that, I encourage you to examine your lives and go to the table and take the bread take the cup. We have uh, rice crackers as well if you need to have a gluten-free option. Instead of taking communion by yourself this morning, we're going to take it together. So whenever you feel the time is right, uh, please go and get the cup and get the bread and then come back to your seats. And then I'll, I'll return. I'll give us some instructions and lead us through that celebration of communion together. Let me pray as we prepare our hearts to speak to the Lord and to listen to him as well. Lord God, it is through your people that you have uh, revealed yourself to us. And we are here as a group of people wanting to be faithful to you. Uh, Lord, as we examine our lives, as uh, we look at how you have equipped us, uh, Lord, I pray that you would expose the sin that we need to confess. And I pray that would just experience an overwhelming sense of your presence and your love and your grace in our community this morning. We thank you, God, for your death and for your resurrection, which frees us from the penalty of sin and into the abundant life that you promise. Amen.